I'm excited for the new series we're beginning this morning, Christmas According to Luke, which will start us in a longer journey through the Gospel of Luke that will conclude at Easter this year. Uh, Let's pray as we open uh, God's Word this morning. Oh God, you have been faithful through the ages. And even this morning as we woke up to uh, the breath of life that you breathed into our lungs, we give thanks. After the season of Thanksgiving, God, it's easy to forget uh, the gratitude that we have in the midst of the hurried season we're in. But God, I pray that over these next few weeks, we would not just be focused on preparing uh, space for family or preparing for Christmas through the decorations we hang, but that we would be making room in our hearts as well for the story of Jesus that isn't finished, but continues on in 2018 and beyond. I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about this series, and I I thought about several of the people who have created great works of art or music throughout history, literature. And I got to thinking about what it would have been like to have been there at the very start of the creation of those things. Uh, I, I thought back to 1501, Michelangelo Uh, looking in front of what would become the David in this big block of marble. And I was trying to imagine what it would be like to imagine what he wanted to carve out, and yet starting with this big block of marble, what's it like to start at the very beginning of something? Not sure how it will end up. Or I thought thought about other works of art throughout the centuries. I thought about Beethoven with that song dancing in his head that we know now, trying to get feverishly that those notes down on paper so they could be saved and preserved the creativity that had been given to him. Or J.K. Rowling in the mid-90s as she had this wizarding world dreamed up in her head that she had to get down on paper with these characters that we would come to know and love, Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Or what must it have been like to have been Da Vinci or Van Gogh in front of these blank canvases, having in their mind's eye the creations they would bring but not quite sure how it would turn out. Or my personal favorite, Victor Hugo, trying to get out the story of this criminal Jean Valjean on the paper. An amazing story if you have time to read, not just watch the movies. This unabridged story that tells the gospel better than I know how to tell it myself. Yes, all these stories, all these works of art, all of these musical pieces, they started with a blank canvas, with a large block of marble, with an empty page, or with that dreaded blinking How many of you know what I'm talking about? Every week. Uh, Sunday comes every week. And I sit there in front of that screen, that blinking cursor, trying to figure out and hoping that in the next few hours something will emerge that's worth sharing. Something about that cursor for any of you who are writers or for any of you who like uh, writing poetry, it's the empty page. Some of you, many of you are creators. And you know what it's like to have in your mind's eye something you want to create? Well, I want you to imagine with me what it would have been like to have been Luke. Luke, this uh, guy we think of as a doctor, right? Probably had his black medical bag that he carried around with him for many years trying to heal people. But he knew at some point that this message of Jesus had to get out. It had to be told. And so at some point he writes down, he sits down in front of parchment and he decides, I'm going to tell the greatest story ever told. You see, in the ancient times, people didn't think that the great creator's Uh, were geniuses. They believed that the great creators had a genius. They had a muse that would come and go, that creativity would be 
sparked in certain moments. And in that moment, it's as if the divine or the gods or, or something beyond them moved into them that gave them this gift to create. And it would come and they would feverishly get it down. But in other moments, it was dry. Some of you have written songs before, you've painted before. You know exactly what I'm describing. Maybe Wes at the pottery wheel, right? All of these images are about creation and hoping that it comes. And Luke had that hope as well. But how do you begin to tell the greatest story ever told? How intimidating would that blank page be? Imagine the audacity of Luke to set out to tell this story. I want you to listen and think with that in mind as he starts in Luke 1 verse 1. If you have your Bibles open with me, if you would, I want to read these first few verses and imagine what it was like to tell this story to start it in this way. Luke 1 verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants. The word. You see, Luke admits he's not the first to tell this story. The first of the four Gospels, as far as scholars can tell us, was probably the Gospel of Mark. And, and Mark writes his story, has his own spin on the Jesus uh, story, but, but Luke, it seems, actually knows of Mark's Gospel. Much of what he writes follows the structure of Mark's Gospel. He uses a lot of the stories the same. But along the way, he tells some new stories. He tells a lot of parables that we hadn't heard before Luke writes them down. Story about Zacchaeus. He tells different stories that Mark hadn't told. And so he takes this and he he talks to eyewitnesses. He's aware of other accounts, he says. But as any creative person believes, he had something unique to contribute. Something from his perspective, his lens, his experience that led him to write, what do you think, maybe better than Mark, he thinks? I don't know. I wonder what's in mind. Listen how he continues in verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. I don't know if that's a knock on Mark or not. Most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. We don't know exactly who this Theophilus character is. It could be a benefactor who helped him uh, to write this story and paid for his way. It could just be the understood you of any reader that would come to it. Theophilus simply means God lover. And so maybe it's us he's writing to in a sense as well. But he sets out to write an orderly account. He takes all these eyewitnesses and he brings it all together to tell this story. Maybe we ought to think first about who this Luke guy is though. See, the gospel itself, Luke, doesn't refer to Luke at all. Uh, The early church was the one who credited this story or this gospel to Luke. Uh, we're not exactly who, sure uh, who this Luke guy is. There could be a lot of possibilities, but there is somebody that Paul writes about. It was a companion on his traveling journeys in three different books, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. He refers to a, a companion named Luke. And traditions also told us that Luke was a doctor. Uh, again, these are things we pick up along the way and learn to trust from people who were there much before us. Luke, tradition also tells us that Luke was a converted Gentile. And as we read this story, as we continue on, then it makes a little bit of sense because part of the gospel for Luke is the idea that outsiders are included in this story. The people on the margins, the ones who are cast aside, they find themselves as central characters. And the parables he tells, he tells the story of Zacchaeus that no one else does. He gives us the story of the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. We wouldn't know those stories if it weren't for Luke. There's something about Luke that seems that he was an outsider that gives him a, a certain... Uh, look at the gospel, and, and he writes in a certain way to include those on the outside in the margins. I wonder, does Luke want to improve on Mark's gospel? You know, I, I, I got to thinking about Mark, and, and for those who've 
if you look at the Greek uh, in, in close detail, for those, if, if you were to pick up and understand Greek and look at it, Marx is a very kind of rudimentary uh, Greek. It, it just kind of moves from place to place. There's a lot of ands in Mark's gospel, and this happened. And it's very fast-paced, very moves right along, 16 chapters. If you want to get through a chapter fastest, go to Mark's gospel. But Luke says, no, there's more to tell in this story. There's parables and stories that Jesus told that Mark left out. And, and, and there's stories about those on, on the outside. That, and if you look at the Sermon on the Mount in and, and Matthew 5, he tells it very differently than Matthew tells the story as well. Luke has his unique spin on things. And he also realizes that Mark was a little odd about the way he started and ended his gospel. Do you remember the end of Mark, Mark 16, verse 8? There's a little bit of controversy about where that book ends. If you turn there to Mark 16, you might see a footnote there about early witnesses don't have these verses. The thought is it ends in verse 8. And verse 8 ends this way. (laughs) How about this for an ending of your gospel? Trembling and bewildered, the women fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid kind of ending is that to a story Luke thinks. And so he writes a different ending. In fact, he doesn't just end the gospel, his gospel in a way he thinks is better. He writes an entire follow-up to it, right? The sequel is the book of Acts. He tells the story of the, the church and how it gets its start and how many of the things that Jesus does through the power of the Holy Spirit, the apostles were able to do as well. He continues this story, but he also starts it in a different place. Mark begins his gospel right into the ministry of Jesus. Not with Luke. Luke sets it up with a genealogy, and even before the genealogy, the story of Jesus' birth. And even before that, a connection to the history of Israel. So imagine Luke with me, if you would, trying to set out the first words of this gospel, trying to figure out where to start. Just as Mozart and da Vinci and Hugo and Rowling had to start somewhere, Luke had to start somewhere. He had amassed all his information. He'd studied all the eyewitness accounts. And this is where he begins. How do you begin to tell the story, the best story ever told? Well, this is where he starts. Verse 5, Luke 1. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, uh, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Gospel doesn't begin with the story of Jesus' birth. The gospel begins with trouble. Yes, Israel is back from exile, and that's good news, but Herod's in charge. And yes, there will be births that will be to come in these first uh, two chapters, but it begins with trouble, a barren, older couple trying to figure out how to have joy in the midst of their challenge. If you thought the good news of Jesus Christ was a fairy tale, Luke ruins that from the start. This is a story full of grit. It's a story uh, about people who find themselves on the outside. It's a story about flipping the status quo. He has come to turn everything upside down, this Jesus. He's come to bring comfort to the afflicted and affliction to the comfortable. This story is not without context. As Luke writes his story, he thinks back to how the story before ended. Not Mark's gospel, but back to the Old Testament. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn back with me before Mark and before Matthew to Malachi, the last of our our Bibles that shares the story of Malachi. Malachi was a prophet that uh, is prophesying about 100 years after uh, the exiled Israel returns back. Nehemiah has built the wall, but 100 years later after all that, things aren't all that much like the Davidic dynasty. 
King David, it was great back then, but it just didn't restore its luster when they come back from exile. They're still struggling with other rulers that are ruling over them. And Malachi comes calling them back to faithfulness, but also giving them hope for the future. Listen to this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. God's message through Malachi is, I'm going to send a messenger. And that messenger is going to prepare the way for someone who's going to come to the temple. The Lord whom you're seeking will come to the temple. This is hopeful. This is a message about a future. It's a message they needed in the midst of their challenge. But this messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord. Well, chapter 4 says more about this messenger. Chapter 4, these are the last three verses to the entire uh, Old Testament. Uh, listen to this, Malachi 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, uh, the, the, the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and de- dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Old Testament ends with a reminder in verse 4 that you're to follow the law that God gave Moses at Sinai or at Horeb. You're to follow the commandments that I gave to you. Remember that law. Don't forsake it. But this word also comes with hope about a messenger who would come, this Elijah who would come. Now, it's interesting, right? Elijah uh, doesn't die in his lifetime. You remember how his story ends? He's taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And so there's some hope that maybe this Elijah isn't done with the story. And Malachi says, look out for this Elijah character. He may be coming back to prepare the way. And what's he going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of the children to their parents and the parents to their children. But then there's this ominous ending to the Old Testament. Or else, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction to be continued end of season. And after several hundred years, with that ominous word spoken over Israel, an angel appear, appears to a well, barren older couple and fills the silence left with Malachi 4 with these words. Luke, 11, verse, Luke 1, verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. See, Luke begins his gospel picking up on the last part of the story. Malachi 4 trying to remind them there's one coming, a messenger who would come. And this very John, this John's to be that messenger, this one who would prepare the way. In fact, verse 17, it's interesting, the language that's direct from Malachi 4, it picks up on. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, there it is, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And as we continue in the story in January, I'm going to come back to John and we're going to talk more about him because that's his very task is to make ready a a straight path for the Lord to come on, for Jesus to come and arrive through. John is a wild man, just like Elijah. 
John follows in the tradition of people who start out in the wilderness because the wilderness is where the magic happens, right? That's where it happens for Israel. When they get freed from bondage in in Egypt, they have an ending to something, and then they pass through this wilderness phase for 40 years before they're brought to the promised land. There's this phase to every transition in our lives. And and so Elijah uh, starts in this wilderness, and, and Israel has time in the wilderness, and it's the same for John, John also wears uh, clothes made of camel's hair and ties around it a leather belt around his waist, which isn't a fashion statement. He's tying back to Elijah. This is the same clothes that Elijah wore. The day Israel had been waiting for is here, and it's a brilliant way for, John, for, for Luke to begin his gospel. He's saying, look for this John, because this John is fulfilling the word we've been waiting on. Because John's role is to prepare the way for Jesus which is an important reminder for those of us in 2018, because aren't we waiting on the very same thing? Yes, the circumstances are a bit different. We have the story of Jesus. Luke has provided it and several other authors as well, but we're waiting on Jesus to return as well. That's what Advent is really all about. Advent simply means coming or arrival. And many of us grew up kind of celebrating Christmas. Some of us not so much in church, but at least in our homes, right? And, and, but we've decided, no, it's important to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And even more so, let's prepare ourselves for that. That's what these candles are all about, is to remind us of the hope and the love and the joy and the peace that enters into the world when Jesus and his light comes as well. The season is a season where we prepare not just by buying presents, not just by ensuring that the decorations are up and all the holiday traditions are fulfilled. Now, this is a season where we prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus, where we remind ourselves that just as Jesus came once, the promise is he'll come again. Advent is a season of preparation. And we need this season because what John and Luke knew is something that we often forget. That it's harder to see something when you're not looking for it. Or as Max Licato said in his book, God Came Near, God comes to those who have time to hear. I like that. Or in the words of Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, that famous passage on comfort that God gives Israel as they wait on the exile to be finished. Isaiah 40, verse 31, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Our favorite passage for those of us who are Alan Eagles in the room, right? It will soar on wings like eagles. I, I, I want to take this opportunity just to thank somebody in the room. Somebody came by not too long ago, and they, they put a journal in our mailbox. And I don't know if they knew that I kept a gratitude journal. I was just about to run out of space in my other journal, so I opened this one. And, and on the front part, of they, they left an anonymous note from some of their kids. So whoever it was, thank you for putting it in there. But on the front was this verse. It was Isaiah 40, verse 31. And in the NIV, it's translated as those who... Uh, hope in the Lord. That's who God renews their strength. But the word translated hope can be translated several ways. Some of your translations say those who wait on the Lord. It can also be to desire, to long for, to, to make space, to crave. God comes to those who make space for him. God comes to those who desire, long for him. God comes to those who crave him. I like that translation. Over the next few weeks, you're going to see this theme emerge again and again about making space. God doesn't force his way into our lives. God comes where he's wanted. God comes where there's space made. Think about Mary creating 
physical space for the child to enter into the world. Think about the shepherds who were just free uh, that night to receive the angels who would come and sing. Think about Anna and Simeon who've been waiting all their lives, waiting at the temple, waiting for this child. They made space for God to come. And that's John's purpose as well. John comes before Jesus to prepare the way. And only those with hearts prepared who make room are the ones that were able to receive. There will be others who will not receive this Jesus as Lord. So what John's coming to do is to till the soil, to create space in people's hearts, prepare the way for the one who would come after him. John is coming to turn the hearts of parents to their children. John is coming to turn the hearts of the disobedient into the wisdom of the righteous. John is coming to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So what about you? How ready are you? How much do you crave the presence of Jesus in our world? Some of us, we are longing right now for something. There's an ache in our souls we can't describe. Some of us, we've accomplished what we wanted to accomplish, and there's still this melancholy that sits in that it doesn't quite meet what we wanted. Some of us are climbing ladders trying to reach, and we just, everything seems just out of reach. And we chase these false things that are intended to give us hope. And what we have, that ache, that longing in our souls is this craving. And this craving is for God. And the only way that, that we can make space for him is to create that space in our lives through prayer and through scripture reading, through opening our lives to God and asking that he would bring, you know, like I said earlier, every transition in our lives has those three phases. There's an ending that happens in our lives. And when there's an ending, there's this neutral zone, there's this wilderness and And then there's a new beginning. But I want to talk for a moment about this wilderness because that's exactly where John comes to create space. He baptizes people in this space. That's where uh, Israel gets freed in the exodus into the wilderness before they come. It's always frustrating because we want to move straight from the ending to the new beginning, don't we? We want to know every time exactly where that's taking us. and, And yet often we enter into the wilderness not quite sure. And we wonder, is God going to come through again this time? And many of us, I know, I look around the room and I think about stories of people who God has brought you to new places. God has taken you from endings to new beginnings. But every time you enter into the wilderness, no matter how many successful journeys you've made to new beginnings, it can always be scary to enter into that wilderness. Right now, I just want to speak to some of you who are in that place right now. The story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is a similar story, isn't it? Before you get the resurrection, you've got to have a Friday, which is an ending. It's a death. And a Saturday, which is the space in between before the Sunday comes to clarify everything new. And every good story that's told, if you think back about your favorite novel, if you think back about your favorite story ever told, it had all of these in it as a part of it. The greater the conflict, the greater the story. And yet we enter into conflict. And in those moments of conflict, we wonder, where are you, God? And we wonder, is God going to come through But when we stand on the other side in resurrection on Sunday, we always can see, and it's always in those moments of wilderness that God grows us up most. No one likes to hear the story of somebody who succeeded in their lives, and all they tell is a chain of successes, how it always went well. We don't like those people in their stories. We want to hear people who've been able to overcome difficulty and questions. They're able to walk through a wilderness and maintain their faith in the midst of it. And it's amazing what happens on the other side when you look back and you see where God's taking you. And and that's what Christmas is really all about, isn't it? There is hope for the future. And yet we live in the tension of 2018 where things are not fully 
the kingdom like we want them to be. But we have this story that reminds us of a Jesus who enters into the world and a John who comes before him who is going to set all things new and it's going to take some crying of mothers before uh, he gets to die on the cross and be resurrected. It's going to take a death on the cross. It's going to take a lot of things. John's going to die and have his head cut off before this gets better. But John is brought into the world in order to make space, to help us make room to prepare the way for Jesus. I'm wondering what that looks like this week for you. What does it look like in in this season of Christmas where it seems like there's no margin financially or time-wise to make space for Jesus, to create a hunger? You remember that beatitude, don't you? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The only way you're hungry is if you create space if you fast long enough to have this hunger for something that's better. So I wonder what this looks like. Maybe it is fasting that you're called into in this season. Maybe it's time of waiting on God, but waiting patiently in prayer that God would bring. Maybe it's a cry for some injustice that you're facing or seeing in the world that you want to do something about, that you ask, God, we've got to make space for you. Only with Jesus can this be made right. Whatever that challenge may be in your life right now, I want to challenge you to do what John's challenging us to do. And that is to make space, to, to make room, to, to make a plea to God and trust that God will bring what only God can bring in our lives. This is the hope of John. This is the gift that John is in this story. This time of year, there's a song that comes on the radio. It's there when you're shopping places. We sing it in church, sang it this morning in first service. And it's uh, Joy to the World. And I don't know if you listen to lyrics of songs once you learn them a long time. Sometimes we forget them. But I was reminded of this verse this week as I was thinking about John. Would you sing it with me this morning? I need your help because I don't want to sing alone. Holly promised me I'd never sing by myself on stage, okay? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare him Heaven, Let's stop it right there. We can keep singing another time. But I want you to notice that last line. Let every heart prepare him room. This is played all over in all kinds of places, in places where there is no margin right now. And I want you to think about that through this season. Every time this song comes on the radio, every time this song is played, every time you, maybe you need to play it more often in this season, just stop on that line as you sing it. And I just want you to think about how am I making room for Jesus to come? That was the very task. That was the job that John was given on planet Earth. And in a way, isn't that all of our calling? Try to make space, to try to clear space, to try to enter people's stories and say, you've got a hunger and a thirst that you don't know how to fill. But one has come who is bringing a better ending and hope in the days to come. I hope this Christmas that you'll think about this, that you'll consider how you might make space, not just for the family who will come. Some of us need to make space for the food we'll eat, right? I want you to think about how, how do we welcome? How do we make space? How do we make room? That was the song we sang just before uh, the candle lighting earlier was make room. How do we make room for Jesus in this season? I want to pray for us as we seek to do that as a church community, as we make that space. Let's pray as we close our time this morning. God, we we thank you so much for the abundance that you bring to our lives. 
God, I, I, I thank you so much for Jesus in this story. I thank you for John, that you didn't just send Jesus into the world without preparation, but you knew we needed preparation for the incredible gift you would bring. So God, I pray in this time and in this season, God, that you would take us through our transitions, that you would give us hope in the midst of our wildernesses, and God, that you would uh, allow us a chance and to, to glimpse your son Jesus in this world. Our, our prayer is the same prayer at the end of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, we make space and room for your son to come. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.